want to thank everybody as I get started here because I have to say that the, the support of folks on social media, people that have followed this crime, in particular folks in Sacramento, um, has been tremendous. I didn't know everybody was out here. I didn't know what to expect. It all kind of came to life as soon as there was an arrest. So one of the things I wanted to do, there's two things that I'm doing. One is I wanted to give back and talk about our crime in Ventura, because it's extremely different than what most people experienced in Sacramento. Right. The other is that I'm hoping one of the ways I can potentially earn some money during this time and, and also through court, if we get there, if we get there, is by having advertising on my podcast. And in order to get ads on my podcast, I have to have a lot of subscribers. So I'm going to try to provide good content, thought-provoking content at the Lawyer's Daughter podcast, and hopefully engage more people. And my only ask of everyone today is tell people about it, share it, get people to listen. That's how I'll do this. And it feels like a really fair way to um, to make this happen and to be able to spread the news. And, I, and on the podcast, I'm going to try to dig into some of the topics that are um, leverageable. That's a horrible word, but useful to other people who want to be going through some kind of um, experience like this. I do sometimes get emails from people who are living through their own nightmares. And my goal always is to see if anything I can learn can be extrapolated and used for others. And, um, and that's my goal. So to me, you guys joining me on this journey helps me in that way. That's fantastic. And that's a way you could absolutely provide support if you're wondering if there was something you could do. And it doesn't even cost anything. It's just social media. All right. So I think we have a, we have a quorum. Um, I am going to start and, and then we'll have questions at the end. Okay, so I, have, I am the lawyer's daughter. As you all know, my dad, I hope you know, my dad was a lawyer. Um, unlike one of the other victims who has a husband that's a lawyer, my dad was allowed to be a lawyer at home. So I grew up very young learning how to argue, debate, and lose arguments because the lawyer always won. But uh, but it feels like the right name because I feel like the thing that I, the, the voice I hear or what's happening now since D'Angelo's been arrested is I feel like for the first time my dad and I are actually on the same team and I often feel like I'm representing him and his voice in some of the things that I'm doing, especially as I'm digging deep and trying to understand what's going on and helping others understand what's going on as we move through this process. So I am the lawyer's daughter, very literally. Let's see if I get this working smoothly. So as I think about this story that I'm going to tell, and actually all the stories that are part of, of which ours is a part, this story to me is really a story about our humanity. In some instances, it of course is the most evil, unhinged aspects of our humanness, but in other ways, in some remarkable ways, the part that's given me um, a lot of encouragement and has lifted me up is the testament, this, this humanity is the testament to our resilience, our strength, and our tenacity. And that's, when I say our, I mean victims, I mean law enforcement, I mean every wingnut idea like Paul Holes's idea and Larry Poole's idea, and I'll talk about those, but everything that's happened has been about our humanity. And it's, it's in that construct that I wanna um, share this story with you tonight. So this, I, I tried so hard to find a more current picture, guys, but um, one thing about my family is uh, we're not so good at taking pictures. Like, it's one of the things we yell at each other about. This was in 2001 at my house, um, and that's Katie on top of my brother, Jay. He is my brother. He um, was born in 1964, 
And then Gary, that's my mom, who, yeah, looks, yeah, that's my mom. She, she looks really young there, but she, she's not young anymore. Poor mom. And then Gary and Colleen, that is his, that was his future wife and is his current wife. That's Gary, the one who found my dad. And then Colleeny and her dog, who's no longer with us. And then me lying down in front, because the big girl always tries to find a way to not look like the big girl in the picture. So I've cropped the crap out of myself, but so be it. I got this body from my dad. So that's how it works. We started out a super normal family. Like you might expect totally white, two parents, what is it, two and a half kids? I mean, three kids, my God, I don't know what they were thinking with three kids, but yep, three of us. And uh, when I go back to look at these pictures, they're so 1960. So this is 1962. That is me and I am still little. We're probably, I don't, you know, don't remember these times. We're probably still in this apartment in Ventura. And then we moved over to Santa Paula, which is a town that's um, just about 20 miles inland from Ventura and it's even smaller. Ventura was small then, now it's much bigger, but it was small then. And uh, we lived in this cute house, 1200 Fernouts Drive. And you can see Jay down there, he's kind of down here in the bottom and there's Gary just born. So this must be 1967. I'm tr I did my best to try to group these as close as I could to the ages, but um, I, I, I'm guessing too. In 1967, my dad hired a secretary. And that is a key point in this story because this, as you can see, this is his office and where we would go visit him. And he was an attorney on, in his own practice by then. And his new secretary was, of course, Charlene. She joined us as Charlene Doyle. She was married to Mike, I believe, at this time. And she was the coolest secretary because all the other secretaries, and I hope none of them are on the phone, all the other secretaries were um, more secretary-ish, like with the cat eye glasses and the big, um, Reva was the one I remember most, but I loved her, the big red hair, big hair, like big hair, um, and, the, and the glasses, and suddenly here comes what I would was called a sweet young thing back then. Charlene came walking in. Now she's married, so she's not, she doesn't look threatening or anything. But she, for me, as a five-year-old, she was completely hip, like the hippest person, coolest person, groovy, uh, grooviest gal I knew. And she wore all the current styles, including mini skirts and, um, oh my gosh, she just had long hair. That was a thing to have the long hair. So she was this remarkable woman that um, was a big deal for me. And it's funny because Gary, pretty much knew Charlene his whole life. I, it felt like I knew her my whole life too, because I was five. That's not a big deal. I mean, I just remember she was new and that she was really cool. And so she was around and we, we, meanwhile, we'd come up to Sacramento. This is in my grandmother's front yard on Palm Drive in Sacramento. We would, um, that was the typical kind of big house with the big yard with the big picnics where all the relatives came and everybody brought stuff. And so we hung out as a family for a long time. My dad's dad was up here in Sacramento too. So we would get to see him on occasion, not as much because his um, newest wife didn't particularly care for the Smith kids, <laughs> but my mom would make sure we got a chance to see him when we could. Anyway, this is Christmas. That ironically, after I didn't have a lot of these pictures because they were slides, because my dad shot a lot of slides. He's holding one of those slide viewer things, which 
for the youngins meant it's just a light box, but it's in a, it's in a little tool so you can see the slides. He loved taking slides and taking pictures. I will also tell you my mom still has this white Christmas tree in her Christmas stuff and someday I'm gonna have to get rid of it. But yeah, so that's the slide projector thing right there. Um, I also recorded a podcast about my new bike. I found the pictures, this is the bike. And when I tell you it's big, I want you to see where that handlebar's hitting me in the shoulder. It is so big. I, you, I don't know how well you can see the picture instead of my dad um, giving me a push, but that bike, it's so big. So if you listen to that story, you'll find out what happens. It does not necessarily have the best ending, but um, the bike was very, very shiny and very new and I loved it. And I can't believe this picture was in there so we can see what it looks like. My dad also has a really small family. It was he and his brother, and that is his brother, Don, and he is uh, Navy, and he would come in every once in a while to see us. Like, I remember Uncle Don was just kind of this figure that would show up and then go away, and he and my mom are really close because he really looked at her as a big sister. They've stayed close even despite a divorce. They stayed connected, and, and that is, um, he just showed up one time, and that's him showing up and us getting a quick picture with Uncle Don. And then this, I just include this picture because my brother claims that he can no longer be tickled and he has told his children that. And I swear I've never touched him. That's actually totally proof that I completely, totally abused my brother, but it was so worth it. And Jay did too. He just looked sweet here and he was always the ladies' man, but he abused my brother too. And then this, this one's great. And I think my mom must have shot it. And I, my mom would hang tinsel. This was a thing back in the 60s. You put tinsel on your tree. It was spectacular. I can't do it now because I have cats. But she would hang an individual piece of tinsel on each little branch nub. Like, it was a thing. It took her, like, two nights to do it. I remember just sitting up with her one night when she was carefully, maybe a little OCD, but putting those little tinsel things on there one at a time. I love this picture, too, because this is so my mom. She captures this where I'm clearly done. And they're just starting to get out uh, what's the race car set from back then. They're just putting together the racetrack. Hot Wheels. They got Hot Wheels. So that's Jay and Dad building the Hot Wheels track. And that's the bank. So they could go really fast around the corners. Everybody remembers those Hot Wheels. What I loved about my mom is she wasn't compulsive about cleaning up the wrapping paper right away. So you always got to have this fun mess. And it felt like something huge just happened. And then uh, just a few more, just to give you an idea, that's us looking remarkably uh, cool, which is, I, I find this photograph shocking that we looked this cool, but we were cool. Uh, for five minutes, we were cool. And then my mom and dad got a divorce in 1971, 72, 71, I think is when it happened. And Charlene became my dad's girlfriend. He was her girlfriend before they got divorced, as you might have figured out. But um, this is when it was official, and she was hanging out with us. And the first time, she, one of the first—I love this story so much. One of the first times we were hanging out with Charlene, and it wasn't very figured out. Is we were in the car, and the kids are in the back seat. And if 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 you're older and you remember when some, the two adults were in the front seat, the back kids in the back seat would always lean up and over over the front seat. Like that was the thing to lean in over the front seat. And that's how you could be participate in the conversation. That's how you could somehow, you know, be, be in it. And so my dad ran in to save on to get something and Charlene's in the car with us. And my brother comes up on the back of the seat, grabs the headrest back of the seat as one did and pulls off her wig 
and then screamed in horror because he pulled off her wig and we didn't know she had on a wig. And I just will never remember the chaos that ensued and how hilarious it was. Charmaine did not think it was funny. We thought it was hilarious. We laughed about that all night long. But uh, Charlene didn't appreciate it. She wasn't used to kids. If you, if you think about it, she was 10 years younger than my dad. Suddenly she had three kids and we weren't just regular kids. We were real smart asses. So she had these kids who then were laughing because her wig came off and we thought it was so funny. When we went to Catalina, this, I'm, I'm, this has to be from when we went to Catalina. Um, it was the first and only time I accidentally walked in on my dad and Charlene having sex. Yeah, it wasn't fun. And I also learned that sex was different than I thought it was. That has a lot to do with their athleticism. That's us on the boat. Let you draw your own conclusions. And then um, they got married in 1975. This picture is really good. I did not know we had this great of a picture of them. It's in their house. My dad had a rental in Santa Paula in the lemon orchards, and this is at that rental. And so this picture of them in just about, I think that's the same I think it's got to be the same Christmas that they got married. They got married on December 12th, and this is then right at Christmas. Um, that's Charlene's grandmother, Gladys, who was a doll. She, I wish she was smiling here because I don't remember her ever not smiling. She was a super cool um, grandma, and we liked Grandma Herzenberg. And then, of course, the children, as one does, tots them out and all in their little finery. Um, so yeah, and that was the same outfit I wore to their wedding. So it's got to be all the same time. We fast forward to probably the last shot of we, we have of them. I believe this is likely Satakoy Country Club. And I want to disabuse anyone of thinking this was a Shishi Country Club. I know there's some Ventura on the call tonight. Uh, last, this country club was basically, first of all, try to find Satakoy on a map. I still don't think Satakoy particularly exists. Second of all, it was a golf course with a pool and it had a snack bar. I do think it had a restaurant, but it had a snack bar and that was the country club. So it was the thing that um, the middle class could feel like they belonged to part of that was really just barely a thing. So, but it was a lot of fun and the biggest part of the Sadaqua Country Club that was great is that we were allowed to order on the account, which means you could just get your turkey sandwich and sign for it, which felt to me like the ultimate power. All right, so let me now take you because now we're gonna we're going to, now things, that was fun. Okay, so you just had a few minutes of fun, but now I'm going to take you into the thick of it. So I uh, apologize for the transition here, but here we go. So um, 40 years ago, it's been 40 years ago this last week, actually, um, my whole adult life, basically, we had a horrific murder in a small town. And a lot of my podcast is um, taking us back to that time because it was really such a unique thing to have something so horrible happen in a small town and also to have someone who was a lawyer who knew so many of the people that would be investigating the case to have been friends with them. So I think when I talk about the humanity, I think a lot of what happened in the investigation, and if you listen to the pod and hear some of the stories I read from the paper back then, a lot of the information wasn't shared a lot of information that they had was not shared with us, us being the public, including the family. And I suspect some of that is because of the humanity involved, the, the feelings that came up for people that were responsible for investigating this murder. So what I wanna do next, and this is really important for those of you who this is going to be triggering for because you've experienced trauma, I want you to um, just 
turn your sound off or put the fingers in your ears or something if this is going to bother you until I come pull the next slide up because I'm going to take everybody else on a little bit of a guided um, a guided visualization and it's not a pretty one but it I, I think it's powerful and it helps you understand what what potentially went on I do not have this a hundred percent as fact it's essentially what I know and a little bit from what I've heard from other victims so, okay, you can close your eyes if you'd like. Sometimes I do because I can see it better to tell it. But I want you to imagine you've just had dinner with your spouse. You've, if you've maybe cleaned up the dishes and cleaned up the kitchen. Or if you're the spouse, you, you're sitting in a chair, finishing the paper and having a drink. But it's been a nice evening and, and dinner was great and everything's ready to go and you're ready to get up. You're ready for the next morning to happen. You go to bed and... Um, when you go into bed, your husband's probably in bed reading a book because that was his habit. And you go into the bathroom and do your evening ablutions, wash up, take your jewelry off, do all those things you do before bed. In this case, Charlie went off and um, tie up her hair so, so it stayed nice and pretty looking for the next day because you didn't wash your hair every day back then. If that wasn't your jam. And you get into bed and you may or may not make love, but you for sure cuddle up and you're comfortable looking forward to the next morning. And then in the night, a flashlight is in your eyes and you don't know what's happening, but the man that you can see behind the flashlight is wearing a black mask and you can see his eyes and you hear him tell you to lay still, he's got a gun and he's tying you up. He tells my dad to be still while he then takes Charlene out into the other room. My dad can hear all of this and if I know him, he is frantically, frantically thinking about what it is he's going to do to get out of this predicament because that would be how he would operate he was always about having a plan and executing so he's panicked in bed hearing charlene scream and make noise in the other room i'm pretty confident that he takes her into the family room which was the room with uh, that was along the back of the house with a big leather couch and a kitchen right there and he rapes her she is still tied up but she's screaming and she doesn't see because he's blindfolded her. She then hears him go to the kitchen and get a snack, some, some kind. He comes back and rapes her again. And we don't know how long this goes on, but at some point he goes into the refrigerator and looks for more food. He messes around in the kitchen. He takes his time and Charlene's laying there in terror, not knowing where he is or when he's coming back. My dad has been told to be quiet and not to make one ounce of a peep or he will or Charlene will be killed after I don't know how long but I've heard a long time Charlene is then finally brought back to the bed my dad at this point is laying face down I don't know if he was this way the whole time or not but he is laying face down at this point and the man takes a log and he smashes my father in the skull Charlene hears this likely fills the splatter on her face. She is laying face up in the bed. He then comes around, brings that log down into her face, smashing her skull. And then he brings the comforter up over both of them and he leaves the log in the bed between them. Okay, you can open your eyes, come back. Um, I'm gonna now take you, I'm uh, not gonna go through that grisly stuff anymore, but I wanted to give you a feel for what I'm able to live with, and that's about the most I can put together without um, just losing it. 
And I have to tell you, we didn't know all of that when I was a kid. I just did uh, in the news podcast last night, and I just didn't realize how much they held back. We didn't know a lot of that. The, what they told us repeatedly is that the Smiths were killed in their sleep. And so I lived with that for a long time. Uh, what did happen instead, I mean, what, we did, what did happen that I can't account for is that my brother, uh, Gary, who I'll show you in a second that age, but my brother was responsible for mowing the lawns. And my dad's house is up here with the red arrow. This is a hill. You can't see this in a flat photograph, but this is a hill. These are avocado orchards and things. And this was my mom's house. And this is a school behind us, Poinsettia Elementary. So really, as the crow flies, maybe we were a mile apart, but you had to go up. This was up, and you had to go up and up and up and up and up and even up some more to get to my dad's house. And that's what Gary did that morning uh, at noon. It was roughly noon. He got on his bike, and he went up to mow the lawn. And Gary was about, looked just about like this. I found this picture that was taken uh, in the spring of 1980, so I thought I'd give you a, I think we were doing this um, before my graduation or something, because. I think that's why the other pictures, this is the happiest one in the other pictures. We look so sad and so stern, but that's how little Gary was right there. He's 12. A J is 14 and I'm 18. And that's how old we were at that moment. And when Gary went up to the house, uh, that day, he walked in to find that, um, to hear the alarm going off. He went in the front door and the alarm was going off, and this is the alarm, that's their alarm clock, not an alarm like a house alarm. That was like, nobody had those back then. Very rich people had them. But this was the alarm like a digital clock that sits on your um, nightstand, and it's the kind you have to beat to hell to get it to shut up because it didn't really do snooze very well. That's the alarm that's going off. And Gary, first just thinking, this can't be right. I, I, this, why is the alarm going off? I'm here too soon, they don't expect me. So he backs off. Then he, thinks, well, it's still going off. And he keeps walking back. And he sees them in bed as he peeks around the corner and still backs up thinking, I, I can't go in. They're, they're just getting up. And then he realizes nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. As it turns out, at least based on what I read, reread last night, that alarm might have been going off since Friday. This is Sunday afternoon. That alarm may have been making that noise for that long. Gary walks in. He um, knows that they're in the bed. He lifts up lifts up a corner of the comforter and he sees on my dad's shoulder right back here and we always call my dad the great white whale but he had a um again same he had a scar on his shoulder and Gary lifted that up and immediately recognized the scar I think he saw a little bit of my dad's face but not really because it was into a pillow so that pillow as you might imagine as blood and seepage and everything that pillow had kind of come up so Gary really didn't see them he called 911, which he had just learned at school. It just was going into effect in Ventura. He called 911 right there from the bed stand. So that's right there next to my dad. And they told him to what, ask him what the house number was. He had to run out and get the house number because who knows their parents' house number. And then Gary ran back in and went into the kitchen at this point, um, where the kitchen phone was, again, landlines, and told them the address. And then they asked him to go way outside. As he did, so he would be. Um, Right here is a retaining wall. He, he sat here on the wall waiting for uh, the police to come. And Judge Lewis and Claire happened to drive by, who were friends of my dad's. They lived up, up, up the street. And they saw Gary crying and stayed with him for a while. Coincidentally, my mom, who was out in her realtor car, Ford Fairmont, 1978 Ford Fairmont, thing was a beast. She went to check to 
she'd been out. She just said, I'm going to just make sure Gary got up there because we're a good mom. She wanted to make sure Gary got up there. She drove up. The neighbors, of course, were all out. You can't really see them in this picture, but across the street, people were out and looking because it's now a commotion. And my mom asked, what's going on? And the neighbors did a, um, a neck cut thing. Like they're both, they're both dead. So that's how mom find, found out. She would, luckily, I'm so glad she went up there because she was able to stay with Gary. And then they came home and Gary um, came running into the house crying. And that's when my mom told us, Jay and I, that my dad and Charlene were dead. And it was, I thought it would be my, I thought it was my dad first. And I thought Charlene had shot him because my dad had this stupid concealed carry permit because he once tried a capital case and he got death threats. In trying that case, I hated that gun. And my dad and Charlene would sometimes get into big fights, but no, they were both dead. So of course what happened next is everything started to break in the news. It was um, crazy. Uh, the store, this is the story you can see there. It said the Smiths were slain as they slept. That's not true. Um, Gary did find the beaten pair in their Clearpoint bedroom. Clearpoint was this brand new development um, up on the hill. and. This is the front of the house here. They both had uh, Thunderbirds because my dad got leases. That was in trade for law for his law practice. And then right here is where the logs were, as I recall. And this is a, the little nuance here because it's not like a log like people think firewood. It's from um, fruit trees, citrus trees, and they are a different kind of wood. I, but I mean, they're, they, the, the, the density and the way it work, the way they work, it almost feels more like a bat than a piece of firewood would feel. A piece of firewood can feel kind of prickly and hard to handle. Well, citrus uh, wood is very different and it feels very dense. And so that's what was sitting here outside the house. And he, this is the bathroom window that he crawled through. I believe that's what they decided. Um, if this wasn't exactly how he got in, he also could have got in here through the garage door, which was accessible by him coming in ahead of time, which he had done, and leaving that open for himself. And then this is the back of the house. Their bedroom's right here. And then the kitchen and the family room would be right here, just where you expect, just that common layout where you have those three rooms, kitchen, family room, bedroom across the back. What I think is interesting, and when the police told me about this green belt, is the green belt they absolutely had one. So this is, a again, a shot from above. So you're not able to see the angle of the hill. It's about a 30% grade, maybe. I'm making that up because I really don't know how to measure grades. But it feels like there was enough slant here that if I parked right up here when they told me that he liked green belts and it was a serial killer, I parked here and I walked down. I was able to sit right here and neither of these two houses could see me because I was that much below them. But there is no way, with my dad's house being over here, you would never have seen somebody sitting here watching you. And this house is down lower. So while it looks like it's in the view, it's not. It's actually down lower than they are, which is how everybody had this kind of sense of privacy. What I think is interesting is I believe when, when this um, complex, these new homes were built, this is the original homestead. And this road down here is typically very busy. It's called Foothill Boulevard. And they looks like they go in and out onto Foothill, which would be dangerous. I suspect they kept this as an easement for a driveway that they never built. So these two homes just never got this driveway built because that would have been expensive. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of land to pave. So there's the green belt. And it was chilling for me to sit there and realize how easily you could see into their home. 
um, right away, like within two days, I think, of the murder, I was a suspect. I would like to um, point out that that's Sharon Stone's body, which I've always kind of admired uh, in my head on there. But I had to do a polygraph test. I'm, I get more mad about it now than ever. I mean, it really messed me up for a long time. I would say a good 10 years. I felt like a crap that people would have thought that I could have killed my dad. I mean, I felt really bad about that, that I, that they thought, they thought I was such a horrible person. But what really angers me now as a grown up, and now that D'Angelo is arrested and I know about all the other cases is that they knew she had been raped that Sunday. There was absolutely no excuse for putting me through this. None whatsoever. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I did that. I probably did it much too flippantly because I knew I hadn't done anything and I couldn't even figure out what the heck was going on. But it, it really has been uh, something that's been hard to live with. Okay, <laughs> for sharing, Jen. So the funeral, again, murder in a small town. So law enforcement's moving on this like crazy. They're trying, they're pulling out all the stops. They're working like nuts. Last night's podcast about in um, the news coverage of that, they talk about the hours and hours of the detectives were putting in. This all was moving towards this funeral on Friday where they were going to have a ton of police in, in this crowd. And this picture doesn't really do us just do it justice. Up here at the, we're way up here at the front. I was um, taking care of grandpa and my mom was taking care of my brothers. My uncle was also there, but my, those two relatives are more the criers than my, I guess my dad was a crier too. My mom said that family, they're criers. I love men that cry, but my grandpa was just ruined, just ruined. Uh, and then I guess there was standing room only in the back. I never looked and there was even a balcony, which obviously is where this photograph was taken. So there were police everywhere. And this is, this is an outside shot of that same day. Um, just looks pretty much 1980s to me, but it was, uh, this was at a church in Santa Paula. It was probably the biggest church that we could find. We didn't go to church, but I understand why we need to do that funeral there. It just for me as a kid or just 18, it's all just felt so damn complicated. Everything was complicated that happened in that time. Again, because lawyers everywhere and law enforcement everywhere and investigators everywhere and and then grief, but you kind of don't even have the space for grief because the adults are kind of grieving more in a weird way because they understand it more than the kids do. Anyway, that's what's going on in 1980. Um, this goes on for a long time that there are no leads in the case, no suspects, nothing. And um, yeah, look, murder of venture couple is filled with intrigue. Yes, there was a lot of intrigue, and I will actually talk about that more in my podcast because I want to get into some of those things, but um, some of it's unnecessary intrigue. Some of it my dad and Charlene absolutely are responsible for. They lived very Dallas-y kind of lives. Dallas was a soap opera way back in the day. My dad and Charlene, uh, yes, they, they lived big lives. And gosh, you got to know it's great when you're the choice of the top 10 stories of 1980, you make number five. I don't remember what made number one, two, three, and four, but um, what a weird way to be commemorated. That was the end of the year in 1980. There were no arrests at that time, as you might know. Unlike, I think, anywhere else, I think we are the only um, crime that had an arrest. And so we had a pretrial. And this is very similar to what we're heading into with D'Angelo. D'Angelo slated to go to pretrial in May, coronavirus, so all bets are off. We'll see what really happens. 
but we've been, I've been through a pretrial before I actually testified. And this started in November of 1981. They arrested a man named Joe Alsip. I can't believe I'm doing the same thing I've yelled at other people for doing, but I'm going to tell the story now because now it's 40 years. But Joe, I didn't think Joe had anything to do with it from the beginning. Um, it just didn't make sense to me. He didn't seem that, um, that motivated, to be perfectly honest. And so he was arrested and he was held and we had this pretrial. And one of the weird things that happened is that we had this minister who got involved. And he, ironically, ah, I can go back to it and show you really quick um, on this picture right here. This is a church down here. This is my dad's house again, right up around the corner. And this is a church. One of the fights I broke up from my, uh, between my dad and Charlene had to do with her boyfriend sitting down here in the parking lot, Rick Atwood, at this church. This church gets to be in the story a lot. Well, what happened in, the, um, in this trial is the minister of that church, or one of the ministers of that church, it was a big, um, kind of the new, and evangelical churches were just kind of taking off in the early 80s. They kind of started, I think, like around 1978 in Ventura, and they were just starting to build as evangelical churches. And so this minister basically said Joe confessed to him. And I'm going to get into this in the podcast because it's salacious as hell. And this, it turns out this minister had done this before, and it was all lies, all lies. So while poor Joe was going through this public humiliation and it's expensive encounter with, um, with going through a, a defending himself in a pretrial. Uh, we had things like hypnosis going on. Gary had to testify. I had to testify that I washed the dishes because I did. Now I know those were D'Angelo's dishes. Back then, it just seemed like I, we didn't even know the relevance of the dishes other than they were out. And I kept saying they shouldn't have been out. Charlene would never have gone to bed with dirty dishes. And the reason I washed them is the irrational reason that Probably everyone's experience is when somebody dies, you walk in and see something out of the place in their house. They're like, no, 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 they won't like that. I knew Charlene would not like the dishes being dirty. So I just walked in to wash them because that's like, she wouldn't like it. I, I know she was dead, but that's, that's a rational thought. And this was an irrational act. So I went in and washed the dishes and I testified to that. So finally though, what's really important here is you'll see that's April uh, um, 22nd of 1982. Ah, that's when we find out Charlene may, may have been raped. Okay, that's the first time we're hearing about it. Again, we being the family and those of us out here that aren't law enforcement. That's two years later, guys. That's a long time. And I could have, I just, it could have let me off the hook so much sooner had I known, but we didn't. So Alsip is ordered to stand trial. Um, he had an alibi, uh, but he was held over to stand trial. But then all of a sudden something weird happened. And I think what it was, and when I go back to these articles, I'll get the um, actual specific details, but I believe the minister was outed as being a pathological liar. And so there was not enough evidence to take him, to hold him over for trial. He was let go. And his, and unfortunately, these pictures are, did not do him a great service in terms of PR. They celebrated as one would, and um, they drove around town in a limousine out of the top of the limousine drinking champagne. So not great optics. As a PR professional, I would not have recommended this, but wow, did it make for some good newspapering. And then the case goes cold. So we're done. It's 1982. There's nobody to convict. There's no suspects on the horizon. And now, like SpongeBob, 
or like any of those shows where the calendar goes days are flying off the calendar then weeks and then years and then decades two decades later I go, I have my daughter, Katie, in 1999, and I think, oh, I'll take her down to Ventura and go see some of the old neighbors and show off my kid. So we hop in the car. I'm a single mom by choice, uh, not really by choice, but I wasn't married, so I decided to go ahead and have a kid without anybody else. And so when me and my mom and Katie head down south, I go to stop by the police department because I'm like, well, why not? Let's just check on how this case is going. I pop my head in, and the they call up a detective who says, come in a room. I go into a room with him and he says, um, I need you to sit down. Okay. Uh, don't put baby in a corner, right? I'm not a good one for why don't you sit down? He goes, okay, well, we want to let you know that your dad was killed and Charlene were killed by a serial killer. I sat down because that is like less than 1% of all murders. That blew my mind. At that point, 20 years later, you know, I've read every true crime book there is, including everything by Anne Rule. Um, and so I know it's extremely rare to have a serial killer. And then they explained to me this guy, my hero, Larry Poole, down at Orange County cold case. And I believe he's the hero of everybody in the Southern California murders, honestly. He had put together through MO first the four murders down in Orange County, which is um, Domingo's, uh, Cruz, Withoon, and um, Harrington's. He had looked at the MO and then started to bring together the DNA. DNA is just starting to go nuts. It's the beginning of the 2000s. He had put this all together in the late 1990s, I believe. And so that is the breaking news is there is a serial killer. And he had named it the named him the original Night Stalker. I don't love that name because they already had a Night Stalker, but it was enough to at least start to get the ball rolling. And we knew there were these murders that were all related. The next thing that happened is I'm driving home from work one day. I'm listening to KGO, which was a huge Bay Area station that I miss very much in its old, um, the way it used to be. And I'm hearing a story about a series of rapes in, in Northern California being tied to a series of murders in Southern California. And I hadn't heard from anybody, but I'm in the car and I got goose flesh because I knew that was us. And just a couple minutes later, Larry had called me on my which also was a landline in a weird way. My car phone that was wired to my car um, and to tell me that those, that was us. That was the news. That was us. And we were now connected with the East area rapist in Northern California. That was a big thing for me because I realized for the first time ever, I could potentially one day possibly meet some people who knew what my dad and Charlene went through. I didn't have any way to know that they didn't even really know what day they died. It's still, it's still um, debatable which day they died. There's a lot we don't know about what happened with Dan and Charlene, but I thought, wow, someday maybe I could meet some of the people that lived through this and could tell me something about it. I didn't know how I'd ever find them. I was hoping maybe Larry Poole would connect me with someone one day, but I, Katie was still young and it just didn't seem a priority, but it was something I'd always held up hope for. I had always imagined meeting his victims um, the survivors at that point and someday. The next big thing that happens is we have the FBI, the FBI um, finally puts out a press release and goes national on the case. And that's in 2016. And it's also the same week that the God awful shooting happened in Orlando, Florida at that nightclub. And so this hit the headlines and fell off the headlines 
rapidly because of that horrible, horrible shooting. Um, but it was still important because this started to build momentum in the case. I think it caught a lot of journalists' attention. I suspect it is around this time that Michelle McNamara started to um, pay attention to the case. I haven't gone back and looked at her dates on this, but I know she wrote something for LA Magazine first. I didn't ever read it or know anything about it. I've never even spoken with her. She didn't, we weren't talked to for um, her part of the book. So, and we only have a few pages in there, I think based on some, unfortunately, the only set of articles that I truly hate, which are from a woman named Colleen Kaysen in Ventura. They are filled with mistakes and I do not like the salacious way in which she wrote it. And I don't care for her very much. Um, but that's unfortunately what Michelle based her research on, which is not a good way to base research. But it was important that the FBI got this out because then as we know, the next thing that happened was the arrest. So again, Southern, the California, the Southern California murders are still, um, we're not all together. None of us are together. We don't know each other. I don't know anybody in Southern California. Ventura is far away from Orange County, really, if you think about it. It's on the other side of Los Angeles. We aren't, and Santa Barbara was never really playing well with any of us, particularly. So we didn't know each other as a group. And then, and then we have all these folks in, in Northern California that I didn't even know how many were still around or if people would talk or anything, but we have this arrest happen. And the most amazing set of events then begins. And this is again, when I talk about the humanity and I do smile about this part, not just because this mofo was in jail, but I smile because then something happened that's amazing and really about our humanity. Uh, we, D'Angelo gets arrested. He's then brought into court. Um, I, for the first time ever on the day of the arrest, after my district attorney from Ventura tells me it's a 100% DNA match with D'Angelo, so I can breathe for the first time in forever, since I found out there was a serial killer, it's the first time I'm really breathing, um, I put my old name together with my current name. So I was Jenny Smith up until age 18. And, and I kept that name anytime I talked to the press. Larry uh, Poole would ask me to occasionally do press things. He was like our concierge, our booking agent. And so I would agree to do some of those things. But mostly nobody knew Jennifer Carroll in Northern California was associated with this except for close friends. And I had legally changed my name in 1980 because, not because of anything you might think, I changed it because there were a lot of Jennifer Smiths. And if you recall, General Hospital had a storyline with Luke and Laura, only Luke was dating Jennifer Smith and she was totally mobbed up because her dad was with the mob. And I knew he wasn't going to end up with her anyway. She was just trash. And there was no way I was going to be just another Jennifer Smith. So I just dropped my last name, became Jennifer Carroll. And that's who I've been in on my whole professional life um, up here in Northern California. So the reporters came out of the woodwork in Santa Cruz. And uh, one of the things, I love this picture because this is one of the things I've held on to ever, ever since my dad died. And one of the few things that we've been able to have, a lot of his stuff was put in evidence, including the whole wall of his bedroom. But um, Windrift Cologne, very cologne-y. I'm gonna, uh, let's see, let me just take a quick look. I just wanna make sure there's, hopefully there's, um, if there are questions coming, uh, I can't answer them yet, but I will. So in the chat. Okay, so I was able to share what my dad smelled like. It's a good smell. It's a very cologne smell, but it, I can just open that. Well, first I can hold the bottle and feel it, but just that smell, as anybody knows, like when it smells like your grandma or somebody you really love, it's the best feeling. I might have frozen for a second. Can't tell. 
let's see if I'm still here. Can somebody just come on and say if they can hear me? I can hear you. Oh, good. Okay. My, okay, good. It's just this. Thank you. Um, thank you very, very much. Okay. Come on, little slides. Advance. So we get to Sacramento and we go to court and I was not there for the arraignment. The first one, I was actually with the reporter who was showing it to me live. But when we go to court, it's in the county jail. So we're not in a courtroom like you, like you might expect. We're in the jail because the prisoners come down from the jail cells upstairs in an elevator, and then they let them out in what you've likely seen on television, this cage. So this is actually not our courtroom because I'm not allowed to take a picture of that. This is a courtroom where they let us come in and take pictures because they knew we kind of needed to, if you know anything about psychology, kind of sometimes you need to master your surroundings. They were one, one time, they were awesome and they let us into this empty courtroom first just so we could even go see what the cage was like because it's, it's, we can't touch anything when we're going through the room, but it was really nice to be able to get up close and see it. So this cage on the back of it is the door that D'Angelo always comes out of and that there's an elevator right there that brings him down from upstairs. So that's what we see when we go to court. But the thing that happened in court that was the best thing is that um, we all met, I got to meet for the first time other survivors. Or I mean, I don't sometimes I don't even consider myself a survivor, I'm like a victim, right? But I got to meet survivors. Um, and it was the most powerful, uh, I'm gonna cry, but um, I'm gonna try not to cry, but it was the most powerful, powerful thing in my life to meet these people, these women. And um, the woman I remembered the most was victim number one. And I, I just connected with her. I can't even, uh, I can't even explain how it felt, but I, I felt so connected to her. We ended up sitting together when we were waiting for D'Angelo to come in and her, her hands were shaking because of course it's her seeing him for the first time too. And we just held hands. And I realized she was watching what from that first day, you know, he came out here in the back in a wheelchair. We were kind of, I guess, expecting that. And I realized quickly he wasn't going to come here. I started to hear noise over here and I grabbed her hand and, and just made sure I gently got her attention and said, I think he's going to come in over here in this cage. And so she was a little bit prepared for it. Although I did hear her, you know, catch her breath as he walked into that cage and we saw him all for the first time or many of us saw him for the first time. Many others had been there for the arraignment. To be together with those people was everything, and it's been everything for the last two years of my life. It's, it's pretty much changed my life. One of the um, survivors has this yard that is as close to heaven as you can get. That is an oleander tree that's like a, a canopy, and the garden is incredible, and we are allowed respite there where we've come together, and I've talked about it in my blog what it's like to be hanging out with the other uh, victims and how um, redemptive this process has been and how healing. People started hearing about it. Reporters wanted to come. HBO wanted to come. At one point, we let them come. But it, it, it was maybe one of the most powerful aspects of this whole crime that, I, that I've ever heard of. And I, and I think we're unique. I've actually heard some that, that's very rare for, for survivors to come together like this and to have this sort of community but it has been for me one of the most powerful things. And if there's any, any victims out there who've thought about coming but haven't come or have thought about reaching out, please do. It is completely safe. You will be protected. 
and the community among us is just, we all um, look out for one another. We, we may want different things and everybody's had a different experience and we may want different outcomes when it comes to D'Angelo. But the thing is the power of this primarily group of women coming together is we respect each other regardless of the outcome and regardless of what everybody's been through. Everyone's had such a different experience and yet everyone's entitled to have that and everybody's entitled to have their own opinion. And what we're there is to support one another wholeheartedly regardless. And that has been, like I said, life-changing for me. Um, really quickly, a few quick snaps. Of course, 2020 came out. The reason I love this 2020 thing, there's two reasons I love the 2020 interview. Sorry, I'm sorry that we didn't to, I don't even know this reporter's name. We had a blast, but here are the two reasons why this was important. Oh yeah, baby, I got me some Paul Holes. I didn't even know who he was. And then um, they, they had this sneak attack plan for me. Yes, that's D'Angelo's house in the background with the little manicured rocks and grass and everything. But I got me, I got some Paul Holes love. And my mom, more importantly, she just missed David Muir. He should have been doing the 2020, but she at least got to look at him adoringly. That's her pinup boy around her house. So she got to be as close to David Muir as she could be by being in the studio. So good for mom. Those are the two reasons I like 2020. We also had the big event up in Citrus Heights, which showed me that thing, this event was amazing. Um, I have a lot of opinions about this. You'll see it on the HBO thing, I think, because they, of course, that's them in the background here with the camera, and they reminded me they have my um, questions on there for HBO because I was a little perturbed that there were three men sitting there and that men finished Michelle's book because when you read Michelle's book and it's her voice, it's very distinctively her voice, and then it's very clear when it's not her voice. And I think it was a mistake that they didn't bring in a woman to help them but they've been told, so my work here is done. Um, what I loved about this was I found out for the first time what a murderino was. Oh my God, do I love my murderinos? And people were so cool and asked me to sign their books. And so I did, and there's Joan right there showing the picture, uh, the page that I signed with Charlene and my dad. And then I also was treated, Aaron bought me coffee, which was the sweetest thing to just have a stranger buy me coffee. Are you kidding me? That, I still remember that. That was so, that was so cool. It was a great night. Um, Patton did a lot of lip service to me, but whatever. I know he wasn't going to change the book. We were upset about what was in there about Janelle. There were some other things that were wrong. And um, I knew he wasn't going to change it because oh, why would he be bothered? So HBO also covered a lot of this. I don't know when they're gonna release. I don't even know how the production's going, but they have a lot of film, and so they, um, they, were, they were always there. They're, they're over, this is like their boom. They're always around. Yes, that's me, the media hog. Mostly I often um, work to, to, to take over the press, especially if some of the other SoCal people aren't there so that other um, survivors can get, get out of the way because they don't want to be on camera. So it's a little bit of block and tackle there. This is when HBO was filming at the at our respite when all, we were all in that big gorgeous backyard. We were warned before we entered that there was going to be filming taking place. And then they HBO was really uh, interested in my murder book. So what you see there, here's my murder book. This thing is freaking huge. Wait, oh, I can barely lift it. So this is old school photo album. If you could see it on camera, and it's big. And this is where I kept all the articles from 1980 to 1982. 
I think there's not really that much at the very end because then things started to become digital. But in oh, unstable internet connection, hopefully I'm still back. Hopefully I'm back. But I kept um, newspaper articles, and that's a photocopy set of it there of these um, these articles I kept because we didn't have digital access. We even tried to find some of these digitally, and they're not available. So now we fast forward and we talk about humanity. Um, we're looking at the death penalty. I'm, I'm not in favor of the death penalty, but I don't care. And I'm going to do a blog and podcast shortly about what it means to have the death penalty as part of our case. It apparently gets us some additional rights as victims. So I'm going to look into, I'm going to do that research and share it with you. But moreover, I really don't have a problem with him hearing, getting the death penalty. It's the killing that I have a problem with. So I'm perfectly happy with him getting the death penalty. We don't kill anybody in California. Uh, and I think it would be very satisfying. What, I, what I'm a little bummed about, and I um, also did a podcast about this, about incarceration, is that with the death penalty, he'll actually probably have more privileges than he would have if he were in level four, which is a, um, which is a, level of gen pop, except it's not in general population. He would inevitably be in protective custody. But it's, it is, sometimes I do get satisfied with just being able to scare him. I just would like him to live in the fear that he managed to terrorize everybody else with. Um, we also had uh, Mr. Harrington, I, this is when the day of the death penalty, we had, um, I talk a little bit about the different kinds of victims that there are. And it's really important because it, when we realized we were starting to be segmented, it upset us as victims. We don't see ourselves as being different. It doesn't matter if there's a murder or a rape or a kidnapping or a whatever, every damn person's a victim. And that even includes those of you that are convinced he was in your home, because I believe he was. Those of you have had him steal stuff from you, peep at you, ransack your home, terrorize you, to me, all victims. But as victims start to get segmented, we realize there are victims that have pending counts now. So murder is a, one of the 26 counts. And those that don't have counts, so those are the rapes that are no longer um, chargeable because of the statute of limitations. And then I, I honestly really feel like we have the one special white male victim. And I don't mean this to diminish Mr. Harrington's pain at all. So let me be clear about that. What I am upset about here is that he had information before any of the women and the women victims were asked to sit on that little bench behind him without understanding what was going on. And it was absolutely um, a, an exercise in privilege that I thought was completely and wholly inappropriate in this case where we have been so absolutely democratic about harm, hurt, terror, and being victimized. I believe it should be democratic and fair. And I really got pissed that we got played for this one. And I took this picture because when I came out, I came out a little late because I was talking to my prosecutor from Ventura. And I thought, this looks really weird. And so I stepped out and took this picture trying to see actually if that was Mr. Harrington because I surmised that it was. I don't think this will ever happen again. Um, the prosecutors are very aware that this did not go over well. But it, it just shows you how easy it is to politicize something like this. And that's the part that I'm going to... Um, I'm going to keep an eye on because I, I understand where, why politics are important when you're a district attorney. But on the other hand, politics are important when it comes to victims too. So I'm going to stay on that one because that, that pisses me off. Oh, my dad, I'm just channeling my dad right now. So here we are. 
I'm wrapping up, don't worry, we'll get to Q&A. Um, the preliminary trial begins in May. Again, coronavirus is likely, what I suspect is gonna happen is we're all gonna get this big push, like our whole lives are gonna get pushed. I hope even our mortgage payments get pushed, but uh, it's gonna be big when it happens. And the reason they wanna move on this quickly is that, of course, we have witnesses that are aging and there are a couple key ones. I know one really key one from Ventura that if we don't get his testimony, it's a big deal. So they're trying to do this as fast as they can. We also have to hope D'Angelo doesn't get the coronavirus. So there's that. Um, meanwhile, meanwhile, when I thought I'd be out talking to people, I printed these really cool cards suitable for framing. And this is the pivot for me because this has changed my life. And it, this, this is a story about humanity. And I think we can all make a difference, um, no matter how small, actually maybe made me more no, now more than ever. I look at this, um, the Gen Z kids out there, some of whom are asshats at the beaches in Miami and the other ones who are taking this very seriously, but we've, we've left them a bit of a mess. Their future looks a lot different than our futures ever did. And so um, as I work now to be, do more advocacy and coaching and things like that, I wanted to wrap up tonight with a way to offer you to be your best self. And so these beautiful cards that I can't hand out, they're just sitting in my carport. Um, th this is the sentiment that's on the back. And this is the part that I wanted to share with everyone. And that is to be your best self. And, and the first step in that for me, and this is from my point of view, is to embrace your authenticity. And that, well, what that means, it sounds really um, cavalier to say embrace your authenticity. But what I really mean is tune into what you value most. Now more than ever is a really good time to check yourself and see what your values are and then live by those. If you believe in honesty, live it. If you believe in charity, live it. If you believe in fighting for the rights of those that don't, can't fight, live it. But find and embrace your authenticity, your values and embrace that authenticity. The next one is really important. It's to be trustworthy. I have worked in the cybersecurity business for a number of years now, and the big joke there is that nothing's trusted, just absolutely nothing. Then overlay, uh, a presidency where nothing's trusted and, and we have leaders who aren't telling us the truth. The only thing we can count on is being trustworthy ourselves. So I encourage everyone to be worthy of that trust and I think we can rebuild it, but we have to own being trustworthy ourselves. The next one's super easy and I think it's a lifesaver and it's the seek to understand. When Katie was about two and a half, maybe three and a half, her teacher came up to me and said, you know, <laughs> There's the right way, the wrong way, and then there's the Katie way. She goes, always ask Katie, what's your idea? I swear to God, I still do. But that phrase, what's your idea, is so powerful, and I'll give you a scenario. Y'all sit down to this scenario because everybody can relate to it. Either you're the kid or you're the adult that you've been through this. Everybody sits down at the table. You're ready to eat. It's all go time. You're going to get food. It looks good. It's hot. Everybody's at the table. And one kid bounces up. And immediately, at least at my house, my dad would yell, sit down. And it would just shift the energy into this negative space. If only he had asked, I see you getting up. What's your idea? And heard Jay say, I was just going to go get the salt. Oh my God, that's an act of charity. He's going to get the salt. He wasn't going to make my mom get back up because that's how it worked back then. He was just going to go get the salt. That's a nice thing. That doesn't result, deserve anger. That deserves actually thank you. What a great idea. While you're up, could you also get the pepper? 
That's all that asks for. So by asking what's your idea, you can use this at work, you can use this anywhere, but it helps you seek to understand. You can either, you can use that or say, tell me more. Either of those is the beat you might need to not get mad in a flash and shift the energy and have a better outcome. The fourth thing is to give grace. It's free. You can give it and then give some more. And I had a friend who taught me about this idea of giving grace. I'd never heard it called that before because I was raised by heathens. But giving grace is really that moment. And I, this is my favorite story that I used to bring the idea of giving grace. You're driving in traffic. Well, in the old days, we'd be driving in traffic and we'd be in a hurry for some damn reason that we had thought convinced that we needed to do this thing. And suddenly somebody would cut us off and we'd get so mad. But wait, what if you gave them grace and said, maybe they have diarrhea? Tell me you haven't been there. Tell me you haven't needed to cut off traffic when you've been in that situation. If you can just give grace that moment of like, you know what? I don't need to win this one. Let's let them win. You just shift the energy again and you create a marvelous space. And whoever you give that grace to is so appreciative and it costs you nothing. And then the last one, of course, is to acknowledge your good fortune. Uh, this is becoming a little more powerful than I thought based on where we are now. As I sit here right now, I'm still able to breathe. The thing I do every night before breath now, bed now is check my breath. Is everything okay? Do I have a fever? No? Okay, good. But if you are, have abundance, and none of us, I think there's very few of us with abundance in all ways, but if you have, it's telling me the internet is unstable. I'll wait one second. But if you have if you have any kind of abundance where you can give of that abundance, please do. This is so the time to give it. And that's some of why I want to share and why I pod and why I write, because I want to share what I learn, hopefully to help others. So if you have anything that you can share, any abundance you can share, <clears throat> I encourage you to do so. Now is the time. So with that, I will stop yapping. Like I said, the biggest thing you could do for me is to spread the word about my podcast, spread the word about the blog, um, put out the good karma for me. I've certainly gotten it back from all of you. I so appreciate it. And I am going to um, shut up now and I'll look in the chat for questions and, um, and or maybe if you want to talk, we can try talking too. You have to unmute yourself and we can do that. But I would like to thank everybody for coming. And those of you that would like to leave now are welcome. And those who want to sit and chat, here I am. We'll do this. I've got my glasses on so I think I can see. Hey, Jen, can you hear me? Yes. Question, ma'am? You can hear me? I can. This is Chris. Okay. So I'm going to say I've had a very emotional journey with you tonight. And um, for so long, up until today, tonight, your message, um, although I'm a victim, I've had a hard time connecting it to these terrible murders. I was like, oh, that cannot be that man. And tonight, um, I've connected it. So that's been a little difficult. You're gonna make me but, cry. Uh, I'm already crying. But um, I admire you and the strength and the message that you have and your family's endurance. Like it's such a powerful um, message. And I love you and I love everything. You've been so vulnerable and you've never shared this with me because you've always taken care of me. And so tonight I want to take care of you. And I guess I'll leave it at that. That's my sacramental bestie. Who I just yeah. met. <laughs> who I just met through all of this. There's one of the survivors right there. You heard her on the man in the window. Um, that was Chris. And she is, and, and I, Chris, I'm going to share that's your backyard.
Chris is like, um, you know, Chris and Carol Daly have been our caretakers and they are amazing. Their generosity, their ability to just provide comfort is huge. So thank you, Chris, too. Absolutely. Love you. Love you, too. Other folks want chat questions? It can be all over the place, really. It's 40 years. I can handle it. So just unmute yourself and jump in. So I see one question here about why did he think he stopped the horrible acts? You know, we talk about that, that the victims talk about that because um, we're not sure. Many, many people in Sacramento will tell you he didn't stop. Many will tell you he's, he was in their home in the early 80s. And while he didn't get caught, uh, they are convinced they saw him in their homes trying. I, I suspect his, from, from my point of view, as I look at this as a whole, and I don't know all the crimes intimately well, in some ways I protected myself from knowing the crimes because you just heard me talk with Chris. Like, I don't want to know her story. It's, it's hard for me when I hear these stories because these are my friends first now. But um, he really got off on his own agility and his cleverness. And I suspect both of those things started to wane. If you look at what happened with the murders, he was really starting, not to sound too much like criminal minds, but he was really starting to decompensate. Those murders are messy. They're, they, they, by the time, I can't even bear to say this, but by the time he got to, to Janelle and, and Manuela, they, they were just horrific, horrific, horrific murders. So he was falling apart. He may have wished he could have done more in the 80s up here, but I don't think he was able to, I don't think he was able to execute in the way he wanted to. So I don't think we have any conclusive crimes, but we, there are many people that are convinced they saw him and that he was in their homes. Uh, so, so another question, um, if, if J, if Joseph JJD, I always want to call him JDD, but JJD, has, has he talked about the crimes from what we've heard, again, we don't get a lot of scoop, but from what we've heard, we have not heard him, heard that he's talked about anything. In fact, I didn't ask, that. I was met with the defense team last week, last Thursday, and you can hear my podcast about that. Uh, I think it's the Friday, the Friday date, 13th. Um, the, when I met with the defense team, I met because they sent us that letter. So the people with the 26 counts that are pending, those are the 26 felonies, got letters from the defense team, yep, from the public defender. That letter's posted, there's a link on the podcast page. Just Google the Lawyer's Daughter podcast, you should be able to find it. But I put a link to the letter that they sent so you could see what that looked like. I was holding back on sharing that because I wanted to get this meeting first. The meeting was interesting. I didn't get to ask how much he's talked because I knew they wouldn't tell me my prosecutor was in the room. But I did ask if they would be responsible for anything if he appeared suicidal. Uh, asking them that they would have the best sense of his state of mind. And they said they would have to, they are compelled to report if he is suicidal. So that's about all I know. But everything I've heard from the grapevine is that he's not particularly talking. And if it's, if he's talking to his defense team, I wouldn't hear that. But I, I, I understand still he hasn't had any uh, visitors and people have asked if his family's tried to visit. I don't know, but I don't think he's had any visitors. So um, the question is, is he claiming that he is innocent? So it's so interesting. I did ask the defense team on Thursday morning, why did you publish in the footnote that he was willing to plea? Now this is a really important distinction because he has not taken a plea. He is willing to plea. 
And his defense team has put that in writing, which of course Page St. John found from the LA Times and then all the world went upside down. And mind you, this was, we didn't know this was coming. It hit all of us like a ton of bricks last, uh, last week or two weeks ago. It came out of the blue. Paige literally found it and that thing went like lightning across social media and everywhere else. I, it caught me so off guard. I found it really um, rattling. But, but then I talked with Cheryl, who's the prosecutor, our prosecutor from Ventura, and she said, no, 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 it, he's willing to plead. And my big question was when I asked them in the meeting last week, I said, why would you do that? don't you potentially taint the jury by suggesting that he's guilty? And they said, I can't answer your question in detail right now because the prosecution is sitting next to you, but we consider it a tactic. I think it's the stupidest tactic I've ever seen, but okay, that's a tactic. And I guess there is some, um, there is some way, I don't even know, I'm pretty good at this stuff, but I can't figure out what that tactic gets them, other than they got to control the narrative they still are controlling the narrative. Now that everybody's heard about a plea, they, they were talking about a plea, except we kind of aren't because we're gonna move forward with the prelim from everything I understand unless the whole world goes sideways in the next couple of weeks and this coronavirus sends us all into a place we didn't expect, which is by this time par for the course. Of course, this journey's always taken turns we've never expected. So yeah, I don't know if he is willing to take a plea, let me be clear, if there is a plea involved, it will involve a negotiation and victims get to be part of that. That doesn't mean we're the deciders, but we are the inputters and the elected district attorneys are the deciders. And if you have an opinion about it, you are their constituent if you're in one of those jurisdictions and you can call and say how you'd like the district attorney to act. So that is absolutely something in our political process that you can do as a constituent. Let me see. Um, I might have missed some questions, so if it gets, uh, let's see, did they uncover anything from the crimes in his house or his property? So again, that's word of mouth. I have heard that they didn't, that they did not. So we have evidence from various crime scenes like ropes, knots, um, uh, ammo that's the same, of course, DNA, those kinds of things. But I have not heard that they found stuff at his house which is a little disappointing, which also then makes the um, curious side of me think, where is all his stuff? Because we know he took souvenirs, but more importantly, in a non-digital age, he was able to remember phone numbers, addresses, and call people years after a crime. That means he's had what we call today a database, but we call back then a journal or a notebook. So I suspect somewhere in we have the whole CR Foothill, so I don't even know where that could be, but I suspect somewhere there is uh, a place where he's got his stash, and we may never find it. Maybe it'll be 50 years from now. Who knows? But I don't think he's going to tell us. Uh, let's see. Do you think he committed crimes in 2000 plus? I don't know. Um, I suspect as he lost his agility, there, there was an interesting um, conversation on Reddit, which is evil place. Be careful if you go there, but there's a subreddit called E-A-R-O-N-S for Easter Rapist, Original Night Stalker. And I just talked about this, um, I think last night in the podcast from yesterday. Someone speculated who does uh, mental health um, brief debriefings with prisoners, like what's the state of this prisoner as they're moving, moved from one place to another. And they actually said there are sociopaths who are, and narcissists who are able to actually not be 100% that all the time and could very well have had some sort of, um, I'm going to say moral, but I don't 
you know, Delilah wasn't moral, but could have had some sort of uh, empathy for his children. And that is why he backed off. Also, he couldn't do it as well anymore. So that's another reason why he probably slowed down. I, did he still peep? Yeah, was he probably was he still an asshole from everything I understand? Yes, but um, very likely he didn't commit crimes because he thought he could get caught at that point. So interesting question, especially if there's any Ventura people on the on the line. How have my brothers been handling the last two years? So my brothers, like many of the men, the um, rape, the men involved with the rape situations and had wives who were raped, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. It does not make them feel comfortable. Um, I know my brother's not thrilled about testifying. He absolutely will, but it is not, it would not be at the top of his list. And, um, and he always gets mad about how he was characterized back in the day because that's what reporters do is they characterize you. So he had to live with that. And I guess it was embarrassing. I, it was embarrassing for me. So I'm sure it was embarrassing for him. And then Jay's the middle child. Thank God he's the middle child because he always says, like, I'm not even in this. And I go, no, babe, you're in it. It's your life too. It's your journey as well. But he is, um, Jay's just always been the middle kid and he has a different kind of resilience. And they both are married and um, Jay's a stepdad to a great kid. And then Gary's got two kids. And luckily, and Gary's kids are still young. Sucker, he waited too long. I don't know what he was thinking. But, um, and he's home with them now because we're all home. Uh, but we're all in the Northern California. And, uh, I, like I said, they don't really like to talk about it, but they're doing great. Okay. Uh, these are always the good questions. Do you know what the connection was to Ventura and Santa Barbara? And we have a Boyna grad in the house. That's my high school too, Boyna. Um, let's see. So guess what? We don't know what the, why. The, the, uh, okay, one thing that could have happened, Charlene used to get her hair done. That was the thing when you had really curly hair, you'd go get your hair done. She did it once a week. She would get that done in Montecito, which is right there, basically, in Santa Barbara, um, on, the, on the Ventura side of Santa Barbara. Could he have followed her from there? Maybe. I don't know. I just, it's so random, and I don't think we're ever going to know, so I don't struggle uh, thinking about it a lot. I just know at that time, um, someone has mentioned that at that time in his life, his wife, Sharon, was becoming, was a lawyer, was just joining the ranks of lawyers. And they were doing a lot of lawyer stuff. And, and, I, and I interpreted that to mean um, those dinner parties and all those things. We were trotted out as children to go to those things. Uh, functions, that's what we always called them. We're going to a function. There was a function. Um, so, and he didn't like, D'Angelo didn't like going to those functions. I can't see him doing that very well. I don't see him as being a very good uh, socialite. So uh, he may have been raging against lawyers, but, but then we don't really have a lot of lawyers. We have professionals, but then all of a sudden it falls apart with the women. So I don't, I don't know what the connections are. Um, yeah, it, it, the, the voice is very, his voice is scary. And there have been many of us who have fantasized in that gallery when we're in court of sitting behind him and ah, doing the evil whisper to him, uh, showing him just what it's like to be scared. Um, so folks have always also asked about why Ventura. So my dad was doing a lot of lawmaking up here. Um, he was close to Edmund Brown, Jerry's dad. That's how old this all is. Um, but he was doing, he, I think he did a car safety law, the car seat safety law. 
Uh, and so my dad was up here a lot and then his dad lived up here too, but I don't believe there's any connection. And my dad even, and my mom went to San Juan high school. In fact, when I went to D'Angelo's house, mom was with us. We, the 2020 crew took us out there the first time and mom was up here with me and she goes, Oh my God, your dad just lived like right there when we were going to D'Angelo's house. It was just that close. My dad grew up in a, lived in a Quonset hut, which is one of those bendy houses, those, I don't know why, but that's, he lived right there. Mom was shocked at how close they were to where my dad, how close D'Angelo's current house is to where my dad's house was when he was a kid. So crazy, crazy. Any other questions? Y'all know you can always ask me questions at my email. That's on my website, jcarroll.com. I try do my best to answer them. I also am kind of a bit of a Twitter addict. You're going to get my politics there, but it's also fun. Uh, it's a good time on Twitter. I love folks that are, um, we, we have a good crowd on Twitter. So if you tweet, join us. It's just, uh, I think it's Jay Carroll. What did I put? It's at the top. It's on this card right here. What is it? Hey, hey Jen, this is Lan. I have a question. Hi, Lan. How are you? Good. Lan so, goes back a long time with me, way back. Yes. So this is such a great comprehensive story. And I put in the chat that your family looked very Don Draper-ish a la Mad Men in the 1960s. So I, I love your dad's clothes. They're just absolutely awesome. And as Jen said, we've known each other for 30 years now. And it's a long time. And, and I've been one of the people I've privileged to actually look through the murder book that Jen was speaking about tonight. And the thing that Lisa and I were sitting here and uh, we just kept going, oh, wow, that, oh, wow. We just kind of had these aha moments. The thing that really startled me was when you were talking about the dishes. You always talked about how neat Charlene was and everything had to be in its place. And I think the assumption was that maybe they had not been able to clean up after dinner. And the dishes were in the sink, and that was uncharacteristic of Charlene. And the house was a little rumpled, so to speak. And that was also, again, very uncharacteristic of Charlene. So it was really interesting to hear how all of that has been put together. So Yeah, isn't it? Like now, I'll, I mean, Lan was one of the few people that knew the whole story from, yeah, from my childhood, which is rare. And you're right, I, you know, Yes, they did at first think, and you're right, that they did at first think that somehow they were interrupted in their evening ablutions somehow. Like, yeah, Charlene was cleaning the kitchen but got interrupted. But actually now, we know that that's not the case. Um, hopefully, it says internet isn't stable, but hopefully we, but now we know this was actually an MO. And by my understanding, um, my new friend's stories, I really have a better sense of what happened to them. Um, and Martha, I didn't choose San Diego State because UC Davis was way better. <laughs> and I, I, do, I do have another question, Jen. So I, knowing you as I do, I know what a righteous person you are and how you value the law, but you also want to debate it. So how do you reconcile the innocent until proven guilty with the fact that this is 100% a DNA match? That's, that's got to be a little hard to wrestle with, I think, in some cases. I think, so it's so interesting that you bring that up because I, I was just reading a book and I can't remember what it was, but it was about defense attorneys. Since my dad worked in that capacity, I think I surprised the defense attorneys last week because they're like, you're way too nice to us. And I go, well, I actually understand what you do. and You need to do your job so we can fry his ass, right? Like you got to do a good job of what you do as a defense attorney. 
But in this case, and I think DNA is really exceptional for this, and I do think it's a unique kind of evidence, but I think I, I've been saying DNA guilty, copyright trademark. But I, but I think there's a t there are certain circumstances when the evidence is so solid, it's almost, I can't say it's comical, because I know this trial and this process is, in, is vitally important. And let me explain why it's vitally important. Because I get to see people also say terrible things, and some people have said terrible things to me, particularly about Charlene, um, I know that there are still people out there who don't think we have the right guy. Some of those people, I think, are D'Angelo's relatives, but there are people who aren't convinced or, you know, just the usual people who are cynical. So I think the, that's one of the reasons I am so gung-ho about this preliminary hearing, because at that point, it will provide enough evidence, I think, not just DNA, but additional evidence that will bind him over to trial, and then we could negotiate a plea, because then everybody who's a doubter will know that we have the right guy. And so I don't know that it's rationalized, but it's more like how to use the law in a way that makes sense given the circumstances. I'm going to take just about two more questions because you can tell when a meeting's over when everybody starts leaving. And, but that's, that's not a criticism. That's just how it is. And I love that. But also, I'm going to collapse after this, too, because I get my uh, adrenaline going for these things. Uh, let's see. Here's one. Do you think, oh, this is a good one. Do you think um, D'Angelo knew his DNA, the crime scenes would eventually catch up with him? I do not. In fact, ooh, here's one of my theories. See if you'd like about this theory. See what you think about this theory. So one of my theories is that D'Angelo was committing these rapes, and back in the day, they had a three-year uh, statute of limitations. He was compelled, and I think that at some point, Sharon found out, his wife. I suspect, because she was a lawyer, she knew that that three years would be the protection she also needed to spare her any consequences, and so she said, stop doing this. What she didn't know was that he had killed Claude Stelling in Visalia because she didn't know about Visalia. That was, I think, before she met him. She didn't know about the Maggiores being shot in Sacramento because they hadn't really put that all together yet. They, I think they suspected, but I don't think that really got put together until later as part of the whole big picture. And then I don't believe she knew about the murders in Southern California. Then my theory says, okay, Sharon then finds out. So she thought she was safe, but then she finds out these other things have happened and he's responsible for felonies that can be charged for the rest of his life. She separates from him and tells him, you need to kill yourself if you ever think you're going to get arrested, which makes sense to me. He was 72 when he was arrested. That feels about right. He's lived a life. He's lived one hell of a life, a better life than the rest of us. And um, then and he doesn't get to kill himself. So he's trying to do it in jail. Although, although last week I was told if he had wanted to kill himself, he could have done it by now. But I suspect the reason he's willing to plea is that he does not want to put his daughters who still live in the Sacramento area through the shame, humiliation, and embarrassment that they're going to face. And I feel for them. I really do. But they're going to hear it every day. And you cannot hide from that when there is a trial going on, even if it's a preliminary hearing. So that's my hypothesis. I don't think he thought the DNA was there. I don't think that was something he gave to. You know what's about. Oh, some people like my wife theory. That's good. Okay. So I'm going to wrap up. I so appreciate you all taking your time on your uh, coronavirus evening. Please, please stay healthy. Stay away from anybody who has the virus. 
I need fans, so I don't want any of you getting in any trouble. And join me on Twitter. Um, there's also The Lawyer's Daughter on Facebook, but that's mostly if you just want to know what's I'm publishing out that's new. And I thank you so much for coming tonight. It's been great. Good night, everybody.